This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 18. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 18 brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. My friends, we have crossed the coveted threshold of a thousand likes on Facebook, and I am thrilled. I had no idea that when I started this thing, I would get this far. You know, you jump into this kind of stuff and you just hope for the best. And we seem to be, uh, you know, doing pretty well here. And I really sincerely appreciate the time that all of you take to listen to me just ramble and ask a bunch of questions that sometimes, honestly, just might seem naive, you know? I'm really, really thrilled. Uh, I want to say a shout out to uh, Drew Epton. Drew, I think you took us across the 999 point threshold. So uh, thanks, Drew. I appreciate it. And uh, Andy Geisler, or uh, Andy, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Uh, Andy said on Facebook, he says he gets the... Or Andy, I'm just going to talk directly to you, Andy. You said you get the feeling that I genuinely, I'm genuinely interested in what my guests are saying, which translates to you and the listeners and keeps you guys interested, which is, you know, great. And, and honestly, I, and I responded, and as Andy knows, uh, on Facebook, basically he nailed it on the head. I selfishly use this podcast to ask questions of people that I otherwise, I don't think I'd get to ask. I mean, I couldn't just, I don't think I could call everybody up. I mean, some of the, most of these people I know, like Vance and Andrew and Ross uh, and Scott, but I mean, honestly, if I were to, you know, call a bunch of these people up and just start going, so how does this work? And are you making any money? I think that they would be like, who is this? Why are you asking me these questions? So, The podcast selfishly, you know, serves to satisfy my own curiosity. I've been at this now for 20 years, over 20 years, but man, there's so much that I don't know. And there's so much that I'm curious about that I love to cherry pick the great ideas from some of these people. I don't know if you all feel that way. I certainly do. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to be to be learned here. And it doesn't matter how long you've been in. I mean, to get this information, I think, is priceless. So I'm going to keep doing it. And I hope you uh, all will go along for the ride. I'll try to keep it fresh. And I think that as each guest comes on, each guest brings something different to the table. And it causes me to ask different questions, which I think is key to keeping this podcast fresh. So always, though. And I stress this, you can always email me, Matt at Working Class Audio. Uh, Many of you have, and I'm sure many of you will continue to. And that's totally great. So email me with your ideas. I may not respond immediately or at all. So please don't be offended because, you know, while doing this podcast and being a recording engineer and a drummer, I'm also, of course, you know, I have a family. So I can't always respond in a timely manner, if at all. But I do want to encourage you all to email me and, uh, or, you know, send messages here on Facebook in public and uh, give me your ideas. You know, I'm open to your ideas. And it's a, I love the dialogue that we have going back and forth. I love the fact that I can respond and there's no middleman between us that we can just, you know, directly interact, which is very cool. So there, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Anyways, speaking of trying to keep things fresh and and mixed up a bit, 
for the most part, I mean, if you think about it, most of the people, if not all the people, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think all the people on the show thus far have been involved in recording mostly rock and roll type music. So today I'm I'm deviating from that. You hear me typing in the background because I'm heading over to our today's guest website to make sure I got all the information right. Uh, today I'm having on. I'm I'm really excited to have him on because I think he's a he's a super smart guy and. And I'm talking about David V.R. Bowles. He's a classical engineer and producer. And what's great about that is, is he looks at this in a completely different way than those of us who deal in, in rock and roll type stuff. Anyway, David owns Swineshead Productions, and you can go to swineshead.com and check him out. His recordings have been Grammy nominated. He's also an educator. He's uh, been a visiting professor of recording arts at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. Uh, he's been a guest lecturer at New York University's Tone Meister Seminar, the Steinhardt School of Music, uh, at the, the BAMP Center and the Peabody Institute. He's dealing in classical music, and that's just a whole nother ballgame altogether. So David's a cool dude, I'll tell you that. Let's get into our conversation here with David Bowles here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Hey, David. How are you? Great. Just uh... a... <laughs> Got the French press going. Eh? I got my French press. I'm ready to ready to get caffeinated here and have, okay. have a good chat with you. Good, hey, fantastic. Hey, thanks for doing this. Yeah, uh, it'll be very interesting. <laughs> it's like I want to I want to hear about how you're making this work. There's a lot of classical recording, and they tend to have long shelf lives of very few sales. And a good pop recording gets a lot of publicity and does have this legend about it that most classical recording simply doesn't have. Um, and I think that's one reason that a lot of classical recordings aren't really known about or what goes into it. And then the other thing, of course, is that the repertoire is so varied. It's, and everything from Gregorian chant up to the music of today you know, one person up to Symphony of a Thousand by Mahler. And so the techniques involved are just absolutely huge. Um, what I find interesting is with the advancement of today's technology, we're able actually to start combining a little more of pop studio techniques, uh, particularly with new music. And so the job that the engineers have to do, uh, we have to actually have an even wider variety of recording techniques because what we're dealing with is, is still acoustic music done in one time and in one place but we have these demands now for um certainly recording a lot of tracks doing some very advanced mixing and in the case of uh, composers like mason bates he's has a background as a dj so he's bringing electronica into this too and so we have huh. to start incorporating that as well. And this is, you know, what I do is just commercial release recordings. I don't even do live sound. That's, yeah. that's a completely different <laughs> ballpark. So your world, I, I'm very fascinated. I looked over your website and I was just like, wow, this is a whole different ball game from making rock records. Yes. And it's very intriguing on, on many a level. Let's start off with, with just on the equipment front, 
and the attitude or philosophy, my, my perception of the philosophy, and, and uh, this is where I'd like you to maybe clarify and correct me, is that it's a, a, it's a purist thing. It's a very um, transparent when re- with regards to equipment. Those are my perceptions. What, what can you tell me? Well, yes, that's, that is true. And what I certainly go after is to capture something not necessarily a representation of what an audience member hears and certainly not what the musicians hear. And we hear a lot about, okay, you know, front row center perspective or the conductor's perspective, both of which are, are pretty terrible. Um, you know, I'm married to a conductor who will just, the first thing he does is jumps off the podium and runs out somewhere to get a better idea of the balance and how it appears out in the hall. However, with the microphones, if we put them in that position, they're picking up, uh, almost all indirect sound. And when I grew up, I would instantly be able to tell on the radio when something was a concert recording because the mics were usually very distantly placed. It was as if you're observing something from a great distance, whereas the commercial recordings, you're really into the music. And I discovered later there are a lot of reasons for this. Um, A lot of it simply had to do with much closer mic placement and a philosophy that instead of you being in a location observing the musicians, it's as if when you're listening, they're actually in the room with you. There's by no means agreement within the classical recording community about this. And a lot of the reviews of my recordings, I get criticized for miking too closely. And then uh, from this perspective of, let's say, German recording techniques, it's actually not close enough. Uh, so in in the U.S. and Canada, we're still fighting this uh, philosophical battle of do you include a lot of the room or do you have just enough ambience in there to feel the presence of a space? I mean, what what is one focusing on? And I like to think of classical recordings as being from a position which is not possible for a listener, but which gives... Um, the, the audience for the recording, a unique perspective. And this also includes when I work in surround. There are basically two schools of surround recording, and one is that the rear channels have ambience, and the other school is that you're actually sitting in the middle of something, and that's called immersive surround. And not only can that provide a really fantastic perspective, which you could simply never get in the concert hall, but it also permits a lot of detail to come through. And I've used this in recordings as diverse as Vivaldi's Four Seasons. And a recent recording I did with Capella SF, music of David Conti, who's currently uh, head of composition at the San Francisco Conservatory. And that was a 24-voice chorus with percussion. My first thought was, okay, where do we put the percussion and how do we have the detail come through? So I decided to put them in the rear channels. And so everybody was facing each other. And for the stereo mix, obviously, the, the rear channel's level is pretty far down. But for the surround, you have this chorus in front of you, and you're sort of enveloped by the percussion. And sometimes the effects are very atmospheric, and other times it's rather, you know, rather hard. And it really permitted me to have this kind of focus without having to overly spot mic the percussion or in the worst case, having to put them behind the chorus way off to the sides where they'd have no contact. 
And then the other part of the recording, there's some pieces with piano, and that's also in the rear. And for that, I, I took the lid off the piano, so that's not coming off too harshly and has a, a very nice sort of atmospheric effect as, as well. Hmm. And then what I do with all this is uh, with today's labels, particularly the whole group of Noxus and all the labels they distribute, they're very much into digital downloads, and this includes surround. So a client might not have the money to put something out as a, as a Blu-ray with pure audio and, um, let's say, or with 3D or Atmos encoding, but you can have it as available as a paid download so people can enjoy this in surround sound. Wow. My head is spinning with questions <laughs> like, <Sorry. laughs> no, no, it's great. I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking of all the possibilities. And, and here's a random question that, yeah. that I thought of as, as you were speaking. Has it ever been done where a capture is done and at the point of capture, you capture different perspectives that could be downloaded. Maybe the consumer could download a binaural uh, Neumann head version of, of the experience or that maybe the head was placed at a, a particular chair position, or you could choose that same performance as heard from the audience or, you know, is that ever been done? We talked about that. I think it was about five years ago. There was a sudden craze for um, binaural recordings because of the iPod really. And one of my colleagues did that, but I think the problem was you're spending too much time trying, you know, trying to do these two perspectives at once. And then it turns out that, okay, if you have a stereo recording that sounds good enough, it should work on, on headphones mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, or earbuds. And then the other question, aside from the Neumann and Shep's heads, there's really nothing available that's, that's high quality. And so if you have a preferred set of equipment, suddenly you're dealing with something else. Uh, th there's a, a wonderful engineer who just died at a very ripe old age, Joseph Grado, and he made headphones. And then after he sold the company to his nephew, he started developing microphones. And even he couldn't come out with a binaural mic that he was happy with. And uh, I thought to myself, okay, this it's not as simple as taking a good set of capsules and you know, putting it in some sort of uh, isolation that's vaguely head-shaped. There's got to be something more involved with this, which I that's not my area of expertise. But you asked earlier about equipment. I arrived at my signal chain gradually through a lot of testing and uh, actually setting up dual mic arrays at both live concert and studio recordings. And my feeling, too, was that, okay, now that I've arrived at this, I simply need to make not only a good stereo recording, but increasingly also a good surround recording. And having the different perspective, that that's a little bit difficult because then you're sort of setting yourself up. Somebody's going to like one recording and not the other. And like a movie, um, I think you want to release something that's represents the optimum vision, you know, your vision, the performer's vision, the composer's vision, uh -huh. and, and leave it at that. There was something on, on DVDs, too, about uh, different perspectives. And I don't think that was ever utilized, really. Yeah, where you could... I know that it, it at least in the audio, it obviously it exists with the different languages that you can, you know, you, yeah. you can watch Star Wars in French if you wanted, for <laughs> example. Yeah, that I, I totally see what you're saying about your, you know, the vision and 
it's a, it seems like a very intensive process because obviously the pressure of that many musicians together, you don't really have a lot of time to like muck about. You really have to be on your game. Yes. And what I, what I'll do is a lot of homework. I mean, every situation I'm in, I have some sort of a graph of where the microphones are placed. So if I come back there, I have something to go on. And of course it's going to be a different, you know, usually a different situation. What I did with this chorus is uh, we have one recording coming out on Delos. It's, it's a Christmas CD. And so that's going to be uh, released in September and they're doing all the pre-publicity work now. And so that was in not only stereo and surround, but also it's available for Atmos encoding as well. And so for the second recording we did at the conservatory, I wanted to have this, the same relationship between the performers and the microphones. So I, I had the stagehand uh, set up roughly the same kind of arc formation. And I, you know, had a measurement from where the mic stands were to the performer's feet. And I kept that knowing that this was a completely different acoustic than St. Ignatius church in San Francisco. And for the group, it was, it was so difficult because in the conservatory, even with the curtains all the way up, just nothing was coming back to the performers. And so at the end of the session, we had a little time and I said, look, let's go back to the very first piece we recorded, which, you know, we, we had in pieces, but I said, please, let's do a couple more takes. Because by that point, everyone was used to the room and sort of not waiting for the sound to come back to them, but just really not over singing and not under singing. And we did those couple of takes and it was just magic. And it's times like that in a session where you just get sort of get your wish and, and it's fantastic. But yeah, so what I, what I do is I, I have my homework done and in sessions, the first thing I'll do is ask for a level test. And we had something with percussion and there was also something just with the chorus where there's some hand claps, which always, you know, destroys pressure microphones. So once I had that set, then we started doing it. And we just had basically three three-hour sessions for both of these recordings. Uh, the second part of the equation was the conductor, Ragnar Bolin, who's also the director of the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And he's also quite experienced with rehearsing and recording and you know, very level-headed about the whole process. And just, you know, we we're able to get the work done in the minimum amount of time, he came out and listened to some takes. Um, I was able to make uh, balance comments, and and things got got done fairly quickly. So it was really it was an ideal situation. The first CD was music that was you know half very known, and then sort of half new arrangements, but you know a genre that everyone was was very familiar with. And and this CD was all new music, hmm. and so it, it's also a lot of discovery for for everyone. And you have these 24 really talented singers who are used to singing in small groups and big groups. And Davies Hall, the chorus, is in a loft above the orchestra. So they, they always feel like they're completely separated, even though, you know, from the audience perspective, it's really not all that separated. And here they're now in a situation where they're really sort of under the gun and I can hear just everything coming through. But, you know, once you get that optimum blend, it's just fantastic. So that, that's, that's been a really good experience. There are other ones which are sort of the opposite. They're live recordings. And this is with Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra and also with the New Century Chamber Orchestra. And these are based on live performances plus a little patch session, either before or after the show. And that's another kind of leap of faith. 
And for the performers, there's actually more pressure because they're giving this concert, the audience is out there, they have to be reached out to. But at the same time, there are all these microphones up and they know the piece is being recorded. And in the case of New Century Chamber Orchestra, it's, it's a lot of new music as well. So, <laughs> yeah, those, it's interesting. You know, I, I, coming in a studio is actually a luxury or, you know, having a place that's just dedicated for recording. <laughs> yeah. And I assume in, in the live situations, is it true that more often than not, you're basically, you're in the same room with them and your only source of isolated uh, monitoring comes via headphones. Is that correct? Yes. And I'd say that probably 90% of the recordings I've done have been in this situation. And it, it really, you know, I would have to listen at home. And this also meant that I had to be very careful about the choice of headphones. I started off with these little Sony's MDRV6. And, you know, they're, they're closed and slightly harsh, but really, you know, beautiful sound. It's, it's very real, very present. And for those recordings, I ended up miking further back than I was happy with at the end. And I realized that these headphones gave you a sort of magnified perspective. And then the next headphones I had, uh, Sennheiser HD 580, though, those were pretty good. The ones after that were Sony um, MDRSA 5000. And those were the opposite. Those had a very sort of rolled off low end. And I would come home and, and the recordings would sound a little closer, Mike, than I wanted to. Um, so now I have their Audis LCD3 headphones, and they seem to be sort of a happy medium. They're Even though they're open end, they still have fairly good sound isolation and are pretty much the closest things to the very expensive Stax headphones in terms of giving a, you know, an accurate enough perspective that you can get through headphones. But, mm-hmm. you know, again, I, I've taken measurements. I've noted my kites for the size of the ensemble. And in the case of the new century, it's, it's very interesting because they play in different venues. And so, when I would do the recordings, there's one venue which is is quite echoey, and I'd end up miking much closer, and it would sound the same as another venue where the microphones would be a foot further away from the performers, and hmm. you know that makes it makes quite a difference actually. I and I normally don't go into this, but I, I'm just so curious. Tell us about the other parts of your rig that you you're like. Do you have a steady normal rig that you depend upon? Yes, and. Uh, the newest acquisition is the NTP, which is also known as DAD, Digital Audio Denmark. They have a nice converter that does up to 48 channels, though oddly enough, it's called the AX32. <laughs> <laughs> I am the first U.S. owner of, of the gear, and that's been real exciting, too, because I'd used the AX24 as a demo a few years ago. It was you know really, really good sounding, but it was only eight channels. But what it offered immediately was uh, multiple interfaces. So I could have a MADI signal going out and I could have an AES signal going out. I could actually make two completely separate recordings. And then what the AX32 brings in is audio over IP. And so that's now uh, Audinate Dante interface. Yes. I've seen a demonstration of that by uh, the the Focusrite people sat me down and, and showed me all about that. Yeah. So, you know, the Focusrite... Uh, red PCIe card that comes out that that's really made by automate and that will get something ridiculous like 60 
four channels of no, I think it's 32 channels of 24 192 <laughs> at like you know sub five millisecond latency. It's just amazing. Wow, we could we could probably dedicate a whole podcast just to discussing some of those things. Um, yes, uh, and also what what's your uh, what's the recording and do you do a uh, a redundant recording rig? Well, I haven't yet. Both DAWs I use allow for the simultaneous uh, disc recording to be used. I think the big problem is that the there's some one rack unit gear out there that allow for recordings and even taking. Uh, let's say a MADI signal, but they don't go past 96 kilohertz. And what we're going to have to do, um, first of all, the MADI standard needs to be extended not only to 192 kilohertz, but also 384. And the 352.8 is called DXD, which is, you know, supposedly the closest thing you get to Super Audio CD, the DSD signal. And I know that Morton Lindbergh of 2L, that's the way he records the 352.8 kilohertz sample rate. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason that the MADI standard can't be extended to that. It's just, you know, getting it all down on paper. And I think, you know, unofficially, I know that there's one manufacturer that's ready to go with that immediately. And so that would mean you could do MADI over fiber. And the the Dante interface, that's now been extended to 192 kilohertz. So it's just really a you know a matter of time before it, it can be extended further um i think the biggest problem really is that inside laptops certainly the ethernet is you know designed to be gigabit but not really for that strong stream of data you get uh from audio over ip mm. and then translating it you know the daw would have to translate it to an audio file format so there's a lot of horsepower involved in that and I think the next thing I'm going to have built for me is something like a two-rack unit computer, an actual computer using one of those PCIe cards, and then they'll, you know, they'll be the throughput. But I noticed with the laptop, even though it's, it, I have a really fast one. It's a nice uh, Sega gaming laptop that you know came with no bloatware or anything. Uh, sometimes I'll notice some dropouts, you know, and it, with the um, audio over IP, that's now configured that. That's the Dante is the only thing on that particular network. Mm -hmm. I'm not sharing it with anything else. So it does, you know, it, I think one of the problems too, is that with audio and video uh, over IP, the laptops are sort of getting, you know, slightly dumbed down. I mean, Apple's latest one has what, two ports or something? One port. Well, one port. Okay. And, you know, as it is, laptops have a chipset that sort of emulates all the IO. And that's that's a dangerous kind of design. At least with a with a traditional PC with PCIe slots, they're separate buses. Uh -huh. You know, they knew that that it certainly made sense for video. But why don't they, they why they don't do it for the rest of the data is, is sort of beyond me. But the truth is, there are very few of us power users out there. But you know, we're going to need more and more specialized computers because it's not it's not the processor that's underpowered. It's just this I/O has this bottleneck to it. What's the software that you mainly use to record? Um, I've been using Sadie, which is developed for the BBC, and I'm switching over to Pyramix. One thing about Pyramix is the digital delivery feature is, is really fantastic. You can generate this huge file and then spit out all your delivery files from that, you know, surround in high-res, stereo high-res, 24-bit 44.1 for the Apple's iTunes Plus, 16-bit 44.1. Interesting. Is great. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the economics of, of your 
your world of recording, first of all, the equipment is typically higher end, yeah. very, some, sometimes very specialized and very expensive, I would assume. Yes. So obviously there's that capital outlay. How are these recordings paid for? How are you paid when you're dealing with obviously large numbers of people? It's not, you know, as those of us in say my position are used to even on, you know, on the indie level, a four or five piece band, you know, maybe, maybe the whole band, maybe one person's paying for the thing. It's, it's a smaller operation. So tell me about the structure of all of this. Well, with my major clients, which, you know, our Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra, New Century Chamber Orchestra and Capella SF in the Bay Area, I'm finding myself much more involved in both project development and, and also working with them on fundraising. And what happened recently is that there is an ex-Noxos employee who decided to set himself up here as an independent label manager. And he's one of those people that can negotiate their whole distribution network. You know, he knows who to talk to in the various countries. And so that that makes it much more attractive for those labels because they can only sell so much product at performances. And, you know, reviews are sporadic, so you'd have to know who to publicize it to, how to sort of get it out there. And even though marketing is not my thing, I'm, you know, I'm willing to point people to this particular label manager and and say, look, hire this guy because um, this will eventually help pay for your recording. And then with some of the other organizations, uh, there might be a a person or even a committee on their board that deals with media. And so I get very involved with that as well. And with Philharmonia, the concert recordings are also broadcast on KDFC. There's a monthly series which I put together, second Sunday at 8 o'clock p.m. And so that brings them a little more value for their money. Sometimes the broadcast happens at the same time as a concert, but that means that whoever's in their car listening is going to hear about the orchestra. Um then also with Philharmonia, there's a yearly CD which contains highlights of the season. And they use that not only for their major donors, but also for their fundraising. And, you know, those, those kind of things are, are fairly easy to produce. And the commercial releases that come about, there's sometimes I'll go on a royalty basis, but usually I just get paid outright. You know, it's a, a fee due with completion of the sessions and then another fee do uh, when all the post-production's done, because of course that's going to be the big variable. Yeah. Obviously there's bonuses in that you're generally doing your capture and is it, it, are overdubs rare? Overdubs are pretty rare, but I have, you know, done a couple of projects like that and it's much harder to put together than people being in real time. And I think, and this also has to you know, do with classical musicians playing to a click track. It's a discipline. And people in the pop field are much more adept at that because it's it's just part of the deal. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> let's say laying down a scratch track with a piano, and then that gets vocal track gets isolated. Then the back backing musicians are added. You know that that's standard practice. Whereas with classical music, it's just very difficult. And one overdub that I did involved two singers, and one of them uh, simply couldn't be there, so she had to dub in her part later. And they had this discussion about it, and it was interesting. So when they were singing together in the final piece, the singer who was at the first recording with the pianist, she said she would 
have very precise diction, almost overdoing it a little bit. And then when the other singer laid her track on top of that, she was able to sort of fudge a little bit. But I found that, you know, even though this, the second singer was, you know, by far the more experienced one, I had to do a lot of, you know, little bits of nudging here and there in the in the EDO. And, and I think in that track alone, which is like four and a half minutes, that had a, over 100 edits in there. And then there was the mixing huh. on top of that. You know, I had to bring her voice up and down a little bit just, just so it matched. And then it, on the final product, you just sort of listen and it just goes away. It's, it, <laughs> but it's the same thing as any, anyone in, in, uh, in this field. I mean, look at a television advertisement. It has to have this concise message in 30 seconds and, you know, often has incredibly high production values. And I can imagine they work hours and hours at this. And then, you know, it just, it just goes away. I went to Dolby one time and people were working on the little trailers for their new product. And these are, I think, five and 10 second blips that you see before movies. And they'd been working, I think, for three days straight on that. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> but that, that level of detail and that effort put in helps yield a, a good end end product i i assume so oh yeah yeah i mean the the you know one one thing a, a producer has to have is sort of a global vision of a piece and when you're in sessions there has to be this sense of what needs to be covered and also the time you have to, to do it in it's very easy to, to become bogged down it's, it's very easy for you know particularly a smaller group to start discussing and debating and you know tuning and all that but you know when you come down to it the sessions are are for laying down material otherwise you're not going to have much to work with on the other hand working with singers is a very different ball game because they can give out fairly easily and also when you're doing these very emotionally committed performances you cannot expect too many takes so that's that's almost the opposite kind of situation and in that case there often is you know, they'll come back and listen, maybe you do a couple of takes of a song and then maybe some patches. And you look at that, okay, the album is 60 minutes and you figure about, you know, 15 minutes of music per session, that's four sessions. That means they're basically, you know, expected to be up there for six hours a day. That's, that's a long time. Did you do any, like uh, your training to get into this field, um, was there any kind of mentorship and any people you looked up to? And how did you find yourself getting into this world? Well, I was always interested in sound recording, even when I was a kid. And once I started to play, I certainly got diverted from that. But I think in the back of my head, when I'd listen to recordings, I'd wonder why one recording sounded good and why one didn't. And I think that sort of started to form my philosophy of not only the presence that we talked about, uh, which we would say is, you know, the relation of direct field to diffuse field, but also I think some sort of continuity, a performance that was gripping, uh -huh. that became important too. And, and certainly at the beginning of the age of CDs, when people were re-recording everything to digital, there was, there were a lot of recordings, which, you know, were just there basically to fill the catalog. And then when good transfers from analog became possible a few years after that, um, digital suddenly brought forth everything that analog was covering up. And it wasn't really so much 
recording to tape, but just mastering to LP, particularly some of the big labels were just pressing records really quickly and, you know, maybe they weren't the highest quality. Um, people got used to this sort of warm and fuzzy sound. And with the CDs, you suddenly had that curtain lifted away and, and early digital conversion was also sort of on the harsh side. But when analog transfers became better and the classic recordings were reissued, suddenly people were thinking, well, wait a minute, these just sound so much better. What, you know, what's wrong here? Why? And then, and digital technology was blamed and okay, there might've been some truth to that, but in the early days, particularly the sort of big high profile audiophile recordings, living stereo on RCA, Mercury living presence and uh, DECA, those were only the top artists and they knew that the company was bringing really expensive equipment in you know, two inch tape, 35 millimeter tape, multi-tracks, they had better do a good recording. And so the Chicago Symphony and Vienna Philharmonic and London Symphony, they were really the, at the top of their game. And the conductors were fantastic. And you got these committed performances. And once the good reissues became possible, let's say the RCA or now BMG series on SACDs, you actually got to hear the recordings as only the control room engineers heard, three channels across. The center channel was the mono release and the two side channels were the stereo release, but suddenly you were hearing something which is just absolutely amazing. So that's, that's this combination of good technology and good performance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's what formed in my mind as a good recording. Funnily enough, some of the first recordings I played on were recorded analog and then transferred to digital. I mean, CDs had been out in the market. It was just the way this particular company worked. And so one of the engineers was their editor, and his name was Hugh Davies. He had been a capital engineer. And in those days, the engineers did everything. They did pop records. They did classical. So he told me about some of his experiences, and that you know started this whole thing in my mind about okay, you know, this recording is sort of interesting. And I started gravitating further and further towards the production end of it. And actually the last recording I played on, which is with our chamber group called the Arcadian Academy, I did what's called the paper editing. And that's just creating a plan. And, and you know, in, in those days, the editor was somebody who was highly specialized and technical. There were only a couple of packages out that were worth anything. And, and they were basically Sonic Solutions and Sadie. Mm-hmm. And it just took a lot to do that. And you could only do stereo editing. And fortunately, it was, you know, it was not destructive, unlike Sound Designer 2. And uh, it just, you know, it, it took a really long time. And I really appreciated what, you know, what, what they had to go through um, to do this. Also, developing a cd master was something which could not be done in-house it was it was very expensive you had to take if it was analog you had to take the tape somewhere and have it converted and then uh turned into a 1630 master pressing was expensive Mm -hmm. and unfortunately one of the records that came out there was there was a defect in the glass master but you know the company literally couldn't afford it unfortunately the defect was on on the opening track no you know (laughs) and you just you know you just heard a little blip but um that was just you know it was it was it was crazy but that's sort of what we had to deal with then sort of 10 years down the line 
I had to make a decision. I, I wasn't, you know, happy with the way I was playing. It turns out I had some nerve damage in my little finger. And, you know, being a Juilliard graduate, my standards were high. Mm-hmm. And I knew I couldn't meet them anymore. So um, at the end of one season, I decided, okay, I'll have to leave at this point. So I went back to two engineers who I'd worked with before and started apprenticing with them off and on. And I started out doing editing on the Sadie system and then uh, producing, you know, first small things. I mean, people's demo recordings. And then I got a commercial release, which I, I encouraged the group to take on. They'd just been kicked out of their contract at that point. So we ended up selling it to BMG and it became uh, Gramophone Magazine Editor's Choice. So that was a good way to start. Nice. <laughs> and then a couple of years down the road, I started getting asked to do more and more engineering. So I went back to those same engineers. And then I also went through the program at Aspen Music Festival. And that was a little a little awkward because by that point, I had quite a few releases out as a producer. And uh, I'd also you, you know done quite a bit of engineering by that point. But I think I needed that kind of you know quick and dirty decision-making and also doing all this music within this nine-week festival. It was really, you know, a lot more than I'd been doing in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the second summer, it was, you know, pretty clear I, I couldn't continue because my own work was just becoming too much. And so that's, you know, that's basically it. Well, the two engineers who were the big influence were Tony Faulkner in London and then John Urkel in L.A., and John was one of the people at Aspen, and I kept in touch with him afterwards and uh, for, you know, the few years before he died. He was always quite a gentleman, you know, had as many opinions as anybody else, but, you know, certainly had the chops to back them. And, you know, knowing that I came from a, a different place, he still showed me a lot of respect, which was a big lesson to me. Because uh, there were some engineers who were of the school that, well, if you don't do it the way I do, you're not worth it. And, you know, <laughs> and so the big challenge for me was to start becoming associated with the label. And of course, the, the big labels have all consolidated. So there's really no, you know, engineering team, so to speak. They're, they're people who work with certain clients and that's really about it. So I've been associating myself more with individuals and with these organizations like Philharmonia and Capella SF mm-hmm. and helping them develop their recording projects and, you know, needless to say, being involved in them. I have to ask that there is a question about the world of classical music. Is it not full of a lot of obviously very opinionated people, many um, highly trained, schooled in, 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 you know, educated folks? I guess every, every world of, of music has its own set of personalities and classical is no different. Would, would you say, I mean, there's, Especially when you're in the when you're in the high end of anything, there tends to be a mixture of opinionated assholes. Is that is that true? <laughs> no, uh, opinion, yes. opinionated assholes, but opinionated cool people too. Yes, that's that's true. And I, you know, as as with everyone else, I've had my stumbles. I've made some mistakes, and and one was with a, you know, let's just say an A list singer, and I had no idea how she worked. And I tend to be pretty detailed in sessions. And again, this is a piece of new music actually written for her. And she was coming into this project, you know, let's let's say she was sort of cajoled into it and showed up at 10 in the morning and 
I'm, you know, being picky also to the accompanists. And then later she just gave him hell and said, who the hell is this person? And, uh, like that. And, and that, that was also, you know, that was part of recording, which again was an editor's choice this time for Opera News magazine. And her track was singled out, which is, which is great. And I did apologize to her because I realized, okay, well, I could have, you know, been more adoring and, and, um, less direct in my, my criticisms. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So you learn, you know, you learn from that. And on the other hand, as, as I say with, you know, with singers, there is that, uh, sort of happy medium of getting a couple of good takes and some details and then leaving it at that mm -hmm. and, you know, going on to the next selection. Um, on the other hand, there's some people who come in to a, a recording session and they sort of want to wing it. And maybe they haven't learned the music or maybe there's something about their technique that they're not quite prepared with. And I'll make it clear that, okay, I'm willing to work with this, but, you know, this is, this is where we're coming from. The final result is not going to sound, you know, like someone who's absolutely solid when they came in. So the clients who are really super prepared, I, I really appreciate that. And it also means that, you know, I have, I have to be super prepared if I want to make a change with a mic placement. I have to know exactly what it is, you know, do it quickly and not, you know, not do too much fussing around. Mm -hmm. And that also means if somebody wants to come in and warm up, that's, that's the time to start, to start listening, you know, just put, to put them in position and say, you know, feel free to warm up, but I'm going to make some adjustments. And that can be a little bit of, of preparation too, which can help. And to be clear, you're you're doing you're not just doing live classical recording. You are doing studio recording as well. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I guess, uh, and I, I hope this is not an offensive question, but are you making a living doing this? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's good and to hear. You, you know, yes, my my rates are higher than some of my colleagues, but again, so is the quality. And I also, you know, if somebody approaches me about a recording, I'll. I'll try to get a sense of where they're coming from musically, but also ask them really what it's used for. Um, and these days I'm less inclined to do, you know, things which are demo CDs or, or something just for personal use. Uh, but also people are coming to me because they've heard about my work mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe are hoping with one of my contacts at one of the labels I work with. That's interesting. So from a budget perspective, what is the average budget for, one of the projects that you work on, not just for you, but I mean, for the, the whole thing, like everybody's involvement and time and money, like what does, what does that look like? I'm trying to get a sense of like compared in compared to say an indie rock band. Well, let's say a big studio like Skywalker um, with all the setup and, and tear down and, and everything that itself can be about 6,000. For how, how long? Like that'd be for three days. Okay. The usual classical session is done over two or three days. Uh, orchestral is usually four sessions, four three-hour sessions. And so you'll do that over a two-day period. Space rental would be less, but the orchestral costs are a lot more. Um, when you look at films and you look at where they're recorded, it's not the U.S. And the reason is because the Musicians' Union has some very, very high scale rates for session recordings. And in the U.K. and the European Union, they're about half that. Hmm. And so that's actually resulted in a loss of work for U.S. musicians. Interesting. I have heard uh, that there's a trend to go to Eastern Europe. Is that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
and they're even cheaper. So yeah, that that that's a big problem. Uh, the union did make one concession a few years back, which was to allow a supplement that you'd pay over the normal concert fee for a live recording. You know, knowing that so many groups are doing live recordings now, and so that's really opened the door to a lot of a lot of that. So most orchestras these days will do these live plus patch session recordings. And I think there's also a, you know, a special rate for, let's say, an hour and a half patch session after a show. Uh, before that, you had to pay a full three-hour session rate, which you know meant something like an hour and a half would be impossible. So yes, the union did make concessions in that regard, but just in terms of the regular session rates, they keep increasing and you know the work keeps going somewhere else uh, for, for soundtracks even for you know recording in in regular sessions um there are two rates one is called the symphonic rate the other is called the non-symphonic and the symphonic goes back to the early days of the lp when the average lp was let's say 40 minutes long and so you'd have a uh you know 40 minutes of finished product per three-hour session and you'd basically read through the symphony they take a long break where the conductor and the engineers would listen to the take and then they do another take and that's how early LPs were made. And so this rate is still on the books, even though it's sort of impractical because of the long break times. I think you have an hour break in the middle of that. And 40 minutes is not, you know, not a whole lot of music, but it does theoretically mean that you could make make a record in two sessions. But that's fine for something that you play a lot. But for a very hard piece or modern music or a premiere, it just doesn't really work. So there's something called the non-symphonic rate, which you're restricted to 15 minutes of music, uh, 15 minutes of finished product per session. And there are fewer breaks. I think it's 15 minutes of break per hour of session, something like that, as opposed to 20. So you get a little more mic time. And that means you can, you know, you can make a, an hour long recording in four sessions. And so a lot more people are using those rates, but they're still, you know, they're still pretty high. And I think the majority of recordings I make are with chamber orchestra or smaller. I don't have any experience in this. So what size, like number of people are we talking about? Well, chamber orchestra is usually, let's say, 12 violins, uh, six violas, five cellos, three or four basses and single winds. Whereas a symphony orchestra, you have, you know, maybe 24 violins, 24 plus, uh, you know, 10 violas, 10 cellos, six, six to eight basses and double winds. And the percussion section is, is also included. And now the other thing about orchestral contracts is that everybody gets paid for, let's say part of the contract is to make two recordings a year. Everybody gets paid, regardless of whether you play or not. So it behooves the management to make a recording of something that utilizes everyone. So that's you know why you tend to see a lot of Mahler symphonies and Stravinsky, Rite of Spring, and Messiaen, Turin, Galila symphony. I mean, really big orchestral pieces because it makes use of everyone. Concerto recordings, I don't know how those are paid for. I, I think there's probably a sponsor who's interested because the soloist fee can be quite large, plus their travel and their accommodation. I'm not so much into the musician's contracting because that's not what I do. But then on the post-production end, some labels require you to pay all the cost up front, including pressing. So it's really, you know, sort of a vanity affair you know it's true yes they're taking the risk of distributing and having this item in their catalog that might or might not sell 
and they're also doing the legwork of, you know, let's say getting it to their distributor and getting it to all the outlets and doing a modicum of publicity for it as well. But that's really, you know, that that's really the truth. And I think even in the height of CD recording, I know certainly I know of two conductors who were funding their own recordings. And yes, they had a foundation and, you know, not for profit that was set up so people could donate to it and write donations off their taxes. But, you know, this is this is sort of how it was done. This is economically such a oh, my God, it's so different. Yes. And something, you know, the San Francisco Symphony, they recorded all these Mahler symphonies and they're continuing. The last thing they did was West Side Story. And I can only imagine that they have part of their endowment set up specifically for their media product to take care of those expenses. Because, again, those are huge, big productions and I think involve at least three live performances plus probably patch sessions. I, I know at one point there was a patch session which was... Uh, like a public concert, they had an audience there. I just want to clarify for the audience. So a patch session, I'm assuming is, let's say you capture a live performance that is, you know, meant to go on record, but then after the audience goes home, the the musicians come back after the performance that same night? Yes. And repeat or, or, some parts? You know, the, the hour and a half patch session would, would usually be that night. And uh, with Philharmonia and New Century, there are a lot of people who come from out of town. And so they're going to be flying out on a Monday morning. So the patch test would have to be done on a Sunday night, let's say. And so, you know, that's that's an expensive proposition, but it's certainly better than flying them back in or having them miss, you know, getting to a rehearsal mm-hmm. on a Monday. Um, the next recording I'm doing with Philharmonia, it's an interesting one because we're actually doing the recording before the performances. And this is, again, is... You know, we could put it in quotes, new music. It's a piece that hasn't been performed in 300 years. and New old stock. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, during the rehearsal, they're going to have to make sure all the right notes are in the score and no mistakes in the parts. And then we're going to do the recording first. And then there's going to be a performance in Berkeley that's going to be recorded live. And then they're doing some performances elsewhere in the Bay Area. And then there's going to be another performance in Berkeley, which is also going to be recorded live, probably, you know, more as a safety at that point. But that's a bigger production. Um, Everything we've done through now has been on one CD. And this one is going to be on two CDs, and there's twice as much music. So they also, you know, again, we're working with singers and with chorus, so you can't ask them to stay after and sing till midnight. Mm -hmm. So in this case, the patch sessions are uh, early in the week. And they're during the day, it's sort of afternoon, evening. And so they're going to be four of those. And that, you know, certainly should be sufficient to cover, certainly to cover all all the difficult bits. And those are usually the the very beginnings and endings of of the CDs, where you need absolute silence. And then the pieces where the trumpets play. Uh, Natural trumpets are more difficult to play than modern trumpets. And, you know, you have to make sure there are no cracked notes in there. Mm Mm-hmm. And then any difficult bits the singers have, because uh, you think of this, okay, 300-year-old music, you know, it was actually quite virtuosic. And uh, the, the singers have these lines which can go on and on and on with very little space for taking a breath. And it's almost like singing a Mozart opera aria. I mean, it's that difficult. And so they have to be, you know, not only technically proficient, but also convince the audience that this piece is worth its weight in gold. <laughs> and so what's in, what's really interesting about my career is that I don't have a background as a singer, but I, I've, from the beginning, have done a lot of vocal music. And it's just been it really interesting 
getting familiar with all the issues that singers have to go through and what really what it takes to produce a sound and all the factors that that they have to deal with i mean their you know their their health their energy level what they've had to eat the you know the allergies that might be in the air the bugs that are going around and <laughs> yeah it's 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 a lot they have a lot riding on those little vocal cords <laughs> I'm sure you've experienced it. I've experienced it. Singers where they come in and they're, you know, flustered over at the time I may have thought, Oh my gosh, what is this person's deal? But in retrospect, realize, wow, it, you know, I don't sing, I play drums and <clears throat> that's a whole nother world. Right. And it's interesting. I think um, in my early days of recording, and, and I don't know if you've experienced this as well. I think my patience level was lower than it is as I grow older, because I, I guess I just didn't understand what people were going through. And I think that that's, that can be uh, helpful as you mature in, in the world of recording is to be able to relate to what people are dealing with, because then you understand, okay, you just ate a, a sour cream based burrito and you've just come in to sing and you realized, oh, that's, not, that's probably not a good idea right now. And, right. or you've got an allergy and I don't know, do you, do you have a thought on that about relating to people in, in the world of recording, whether it be musicians or, or the, just those that you're dealing with? Well, one piece of luck though, I didn't see it at the time was that I worked with two producers who I learned negatively from. And one was just the stereotype of the impatient one. I mean, Nothing was good enough, and and you were just made to feel like trash if you didn't get something on the first take. And one artist would be the favorite one, you know, six month period, and then suddenly they'd be knocked off their pedestal, and another one could do no harm. And anybody else was, as I say, just treated like garbage. And even when somebody did a good take, they would be put through what one singer called the acid bath. <laughs> <laughs> and I. I hadn't considered making the switch, but I said to myself many times, if I ever had to do this, I would never treat artists like this. Um, and then the other producer was somebody who was good, but just kept trying to contrive his way to what he wanted as an interpretation. And this is not, not just to soloists, but also to the conductors. And it, it was just, I saw that behavior as being very, very irritating. Um, so what those two people taught me was, first of all, to be patient, because I've been on the other side of the microphone. I, I know what it's like. Um, second of all, once I stopped performing, I had to put the instrument down for good. I mean, I cannot act like um, have a big inferiority complex like the first producer did. And that's what it came down to, that that producer had a failed career as a performer and would take it out on on all the musicians they worked with from then on. And I thought, okay, this is, you know, my background is irrelevant. It's what's important is they're in front of the microphone now. I have to get the best performance out of them. And the final third lesson was to roll with the punches. And people would bring in pieces that I might have been familiar with, but they're going to have their own interpretation. And sometimes in the case of these early demo CDs, yes, there would be, you know, things I'd have to say they're obviously not following the music. Okay. But with the level of people I work at now, I can't just come in and immediately start challenging the way they're performing. Yes, I will have things to say about 
how they're projecting into the microphone. And that's that's my job as, as a producer. And I'll say to a lot of people, don't come in and project as if you're in a big concert hall. You know, the microphone is, is much more intimate. So they could put in, let's say, 95% of the volume and they'd end up sounding a lot less edgy. Uh-huh. And so that's that's an important thing to remember about your mic technique. And I think, uh, again, pop singers, because they don't sing unaided, they start learning to work the mic really quite early on. I mean, anybody who does a live show, they've, they've, they've got a microphone. And so it be, it sort of becomes one with them. I mean, yes, they're going to be they're not going to be holding an SM57 up up to their their lips, but nevertheless, they're going to be near a studio mic. They're going to have their own technique for you know maybe backing off a little bit or turning their head slightly if um, they don't want a plosive to even go through a pop screen. Classical, it's not that's not so much. And for people who are doing a recording for the first time. Okay, you have to guide them through that. But it also, going back to the thing about being prepared, you also have to be prepared to make some pretty quick mic switches. And my last two sessions with singers, I had to do just that. I had this idea, and I'd even recorded one of them live in, in concerts before. You know, I was using something fairly similar, and in the studio it just didn't work. So I, I made a quick switch. That did work. The second one, I wanted to use that you know lovely vintage microphone, and this singer came in with a cold, and I ended up switching to a a ribbon mic and that turned out to be the right choice in that situation. Do you think that, um, and I say pop as a catch-all term for rap, rock, country, et cetera, do you think that people from that musical background tend to have a closer, more developed relationship with the recording process than the classical world? Well, yeah, Uh, because for some, really the recordings are their main way of getting through to an audience. and I know a lot of people have been to live shows get disappointed because it doesn't sound as good as the recording. And that's a bit of misunderstanding on, on the audience member's point of view because it's it's not meant to be. I mean, a live show is an experience unto itself and it's certainly going to be mic'd very differently. And, and the live sound people, I mean, what, what they're doing is, is not only a science but also an art. Um, with classical music, because people are you know trained to project just with their voice – that has a, an extremely different technique. And with some big opera singers, you don't even need a spot mic. And in fact, if you use one, you get something that just sounds really sort of, you know, horribly detailed in, in the wrong way. And actually, what's interesting about some of those early Decca recordings is they had the Vienna Philharmonic and behind them, they had a like a stage, narrow stage platform built. And the singers would be up on that. So most of the sound was being projected over an orchestra into the Decca tree, and then the spot mics for the singers were not something you'd expect, like an M49, but they were little KM54s. And it was just enough to get a little bit of presence on the voice. And so my last studio recording with one of these singers, admittedly she was working with a small group, but most of her sound is coming through the main array, and I ended up using a small diaphragm cardioid just, just to get a little bit of presence, and that ended up doing it. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Completely, uh, you know, different from from what I'd expected. But I thought, okay, you know, I've worked with, I'd done a recording with her before, which is, you know, got got some very good reviews. And I thought, I'm going to just try a different approach this time. And and that ended up working. The post-production end of what you do, the mixing part of what you do, is it considered, do you you work in the box? Is there outboard analog gear incorporated in a hybrid fashion or? Well, I've been working in the box. Um, 
both Sadie and Pyramix have very, very good mix engines and, and, you know, very transparent. And I, you know, I start getting a preliminary mix even during the sessions. I'm not going to spend too much time on that because I want to be uh, tracking and getting as much material as, as I can. And then once I'm at home, I'll start working with, uh, I use Isotope Ozone and also the RX4. Uh, both are very good in dealing with ambience some of some of the unattractive things you get with real locations. Yeah. <laughs> and I find also that, well, Sadie has some very good EQ and the, the Pyramix I'm just starting to discover. Um, I just wanted that, you know, the kind of control that I could also, you know, bring sort of from session to session. Because uh, there's certain things, let's say um, I recorded St. Ignatius. Well, I just recorded another chorus there, a big chorus. I have the settings from Capella SF so I can use that uh to to run this other recording through once that's finished uh -huh. um so that makes a lot of sense um going out analog means making a conversion back and forth and i know that the dsd folk do that because you can't do any sort of processing with dsd it has to has to be analog and i think you'd have to have you know something extremely high-end i just got this dad unit and it's it's fantastic you know that would be one possibility but I don't really see a need for that. There's some other DAWs who I won't mention. The mix engines are not good. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the reason there's this trend to want to go out analog and come back in. There's also the whole thing about, you know, replicating your settings, which can be a little difficult with, with the boxes, with the outboard gear. And then again, you're spending a lot of money. Um, I, it's just a whole thing I haven't got into yet. I mean, I, I think they're good enough digital tools out there now that you you can do this also i i tend oh yeah there's one thing that the ozone has which is an adaptive eq which they call dynamic and what that means it kicks in when the amplitude goes up which is great because let's say you have a singer with an edge or a violinist with an edge that's not going to necessarily come out when they're performing it at a low volume mm -hmm. but if you use traditional eq that sort of dulls everything or it can and with this it kicks in um, when the level goes up and does it selectively. And I th that, that to me is the one tool that I don't think has been ever done in the analog domain. Yeah, McDSP has, has a, a similar plugin uh, to the Ozone. God, I was just having this conversation, like I think it was yesterday or the day before about this very same thing, this very same concept. This is uh, something that people are excited about. Yeah, well, you can you can really see why, and and also with the you know with the noise reduction. Yes, cedar was absolutely fantastic for its time, but it was a little bit like a sledgehammer in some ways if you applied it too aggressively. And what the RX4 has, of course, is is an adaptive algorithm which will kick in more when there's ambience and and you know no sound going on, and then kick in less because of our auditory masking. And so again, the recording doesn't sound so dull as, as a result. Um, and then, God, yeah, a, a couple of places I've got into, there'd be this really specific high pitch line. And one place it was, it was 25 kilohertz. It was just odd. And the other one, uh, St. Ignatius, it was when the organ was on and it was, it was about seven kilohertz. And, you know, using the RX4 to get rid of that, you could just clean out that that little bit and not have it interfere with the rest of your recording. Interesting. Yeah. Um. So, do you, with regards to 
financial decisions and equipment purchases, many people in the recording world suffer from gear lust, right. constant seeking out of the next thing that's going to, they feel is going to change everything. <clears throat> um, it strikes me that those in the classical world, and not to say that those in the pop world are, are, are different, but your gear choices, you have to be very discerning because I guess as, as we've discussed, you know, transparency is is important. Quality is important. But when it comes to equipment, do you have an overarching financial philosophy to keep yourself from overspending or so you, basically to keep yourself from going in the hole? Well, yes, that, that, that's important. And uh, one thing I had to do was with this DAD AX32 purchase was I had to take out a line of credit and just, you know, looking at that every month, and seeing how that's getting paid off, that that's enough of, of a break for now. And yes, I do have a list of things I would like to get, and that's I'm really keeping that at bay. I mean, now I have uh, taxes to think about, mm -hmm. and there's mortgage payments, and there's paying off the line of credit gradually, and there's also um, what's going into the retirement accounts because mm -hmm. you have an SEP payment, which is due after you have your taxes figure out, and then there's the two of one five contributions. So yeah, there, you know, one has to be fairly realistic about what the outlay is. Um, on the other hand, I've been lucky enough, the main microphones that I use, I bought two. And then over the past five years or so, I've been able to get two more pairs of those through not just eBay, but uh, gear slots. Ah, okay. I mean, really lucky. I was able to find those for 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 good prices. Um, there's another dealer, SoundPure, and I've been dealing with them, sort of trying to get rid of equipment that I no longer use, and I do that on credit, so I can get a better trade-in value. Um, and that way, I was able to turn, let's say, two Royer SF1 microphones into two Royer SF2s. Okay. You know, so yes, I'm I'm making an outlay, but it's being given, you know, a considerable break because of this credit I have with them. What's what's your advice to other engineers, whether classical or pop uh, rec recordists, in terms of money and, and, and making sure you're covering your ass? Well, one has to put together a list of priorities. You know, these days, I know Pro Tools has a model, a subscription model, and that means you don't have to actually pay a lot of money for, for that. Mm-hmm. Um, interfaces, I would say go for something, at least at the mid end, if you get something that's really cheap, you're not going to be happy with it and you're going to end up spending more money in the long run, you know, and certainly if you try to sell something cheap, you're not going to get a very good price for it. Um, microphones evaluate, do AB testing whenever possible. <clears throat> and, and this also means that it's in a studio situation, um, if you're apprenticing with somebody, ask them, you know, Let's say there's a microphone you're interested in, you're, you're able to try it out. Ask them to set it up on a track and, and just record that extra track so you can listen to it. Um, do as much of that kind of sort of evaluation. But also, you know, the, the most important thing is to put together a priority. What What is most important to you? Getting a good microphone, getting a good interface, um, getting good cables, you know, mm -hmm. and really thinking realistically about it. It's, it's not It's not fun. It's going to take you years to put together a, a rig that you're happy with, and that was certainly the case with me. I I can't you know tell you how many pieces of equipment I've I've sold off over the years. But also, if there's something that you have lying around the house that you're no longer using, 
that's that's the time to get rid of it. On the other hand, if there's something that you know you you do need once in a while, don't you know don't sell it off because you're desperate because you might have find yourself buying it back again. Mm -hmm. And that happened with me once too. There was a an updated version of a certain microphone, and I got two more. And then over the years, noticed that I kept not using them, and I finally just sold them off. Actually, that was one of the things with SoundPure, and I ended up getting you know buying back two of the original ones at a much higher price. I should have just, you know, kept them and, you know, demoed the new ones, did the A-B test. <laughs> Sounds like you're on top of, of, of your money priorities with regards to recording. Yes. And, but also remember, I've been doing this for 21 years now. So, yeah. you know, this, this makes a big difference. I, I think people starting out probably have a wider variety of mid-level equipment than I had. With me, it was, you know, really expensive mics or very cheap mics. There was really nothing in the middle. Is there a lot of judgment uh, amongst the peers in recording in, in the classical world as far as like, oh, you use that? Oh, yeah. You know, people ask me if I use a certain brand of mics or why I don't use them. And I don't know if it's lost me any work, but I, I sort of find it interesting. And then I, I'll usually say, well, have you tried the ones I use? No, never heard of them. Well, yeah. X, Y, and Z use them. They're fantastic. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's also, you know, I wanted to define something as my sound. And it's not just with the mic placement, it's the choice of mics. I'm sort of allergic to those that have a high frequency bump. And I think that was something which came out with analog recording right at the beginning when tape wasn't that sensitive. And also people just wanted to hear more high end. When the AKJ C12 came out, it had a high frequency bump, which was inconsistent. In some models, it goes up to 12 dB. Wow. Yeah. And I'd used one actually at, at Studio X and immediately switched it out because I thought, God, this sounds terrible. And yet, you know, I'd heard so many recordings made with it where it sounded good. And then I got in touch with a mic manufacturer and he said, yeah, sure enough, the, the, the high frequency rise is inconsistent. But even with modern mics, um, there's no need for it because digital recording is has a flat response. Um, we have preamps that have a you know, quite a, a long high frequency extension, which goes way beyond our hearing range. And there's really no need for that. I mean, I think it's, you know, to, to hear recordings with this sort of edge starting around two kilohertz and going up to about seven or so, that to me just, just gets irritating. And uh, with classical music, you have, you know, you have this extended range anyway. Um, I think the only thing you'd use them for is if you're recording at a really, really dull acoustic. Mm -hmm. And for that, I mean, I have these spheres I can put on, on the front of my mics, which, you know, gives, gives it a bit of a bump around 3.5 kilohertz. So I can always pull those out if I need to. But most of our modern concert halls and certainly studios have, you know, highly polished surfaces anyway, you know, finished wood. And that has uh, pretty bright reflections right there. Interesting. What do you think uh, people in the pop music world could learn from those in the classical world? Well, I think I think what they could learn about is a basic mic placement for what they want to pick up. Um, the other thing which I learned from listening to LPs when I was growing up was what we would now call imaging. Mm -hmm. And the ones I liked the most were the ones where I could really sense the performers in front of me. And the ones that had everybody just sort of layered on top of each other, I didn't like. And what's very interesting is that one of those the first recordings to use multi-miking and, you know, I say piling things on top of each other, that was Fantasia. The soundtrack. Yes. And there's some very interesting pictures. They actually had tried to record using not isoboos, but I guess gobos between orchestral sections and miking everybody pretty separately. 
And I guess that didn't work. But yes, they, they did this experimental recording and then they came back and re-recorded in a more traditional seating, but they had a lot of mics. And at one of the AES shows, somebody was talking about early stereo. So they, they were playing a lot of these experiments and you had the Bell Labs on the one hand, which are using the Philadelphia Orchestra, and their their theory started out that you'd have to have a lot of microphones spaced in a row to be able to you know pick something up realistically, and then you'd have a row of speakers. Now today we call that wave field synthesis, huh. and that's being developed, and it can can be very very effective in in reproducing a kind of three dimensionality that you don't get from two or three speakers. But anyway, what, what Bell Labs then did is they boiled it down to three speakers. So they had left, right, and center. And that is where the RCA living stereo technique comes from. And funnily enough, it's that same orchestra, the Philadelphia, which was used to record parts of, of Fantasia. Uh, parts were done in L.A. with the studio orchestra. But in in playing these demos, a live Philadelphia orchestra concert you know, using these Bell Labs techniques on 16-inch transcription discs, the sound is, is quite amazing. And you really did feel like, you know, the orchestra was right there with you. And in the Fantasia, the studio recordings just felt sort of jumbled together. I mean, yes, you heard all this detail, but it just it just didn't make sense. And I was thinking, what a long way our ears have come since the 1930s. I mean, for that time, hearing two different channels was radical. And I don't think people could get beyond that. I mean, suddenly they're hearing left and right. They must have almost felt disoriented, you know, after decades of just having either, you know, a horn speaker directly from a um, disc player or one of these freestanding units. And that that was how they did their listening, either uh, 78s or, or listening to the radio. And suddenly they're hearing, you know, two speakers and, and speakers all over the, the cinema. It must have been just radical to them. But now we take that for granted and we expect something a little bit better. Anybody who's gone to a screening either at Dolby or at Skywalker, that is the ultimate because it's it's not only the multiple speaker experience, but it's a room that's been tuned. Mm-hmm. Whereas most cinemas, you know, are sadly lacking in that. But we have sort of higher expectations now. Um, home theater systems will get multi-channel sound, will get surround sound certainly through TV series, but even even the news, they sort of, you know, approximate some ambience in the back. We, we sort of expect that now. So um, where this leaves our engineering is we have to expect more of ourselves in terms of what we pick up and what kind of experiencing we're capturing. And I like to tell students and tell myself over and over again that what I do in surround has really influenced my stereo recording technique. and even further than that, the recordings that I've done in surround plus high channel layer, that has in turn informed my surround recordings. Interesting. I like that. Well, that's all the time we have. So thank you, David Bowles, for for being with us on Working Class Audio. Great. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care, David. You too. Cheers. Well, once again, another great interview down. WCA number 18, David Bowles. Thank you, David. What a, what a great guy. Anyhow, uh, we're done that's it let's move on we'll go on to number 19 see you next week uh i gotta go i gotta go get the kids from school amazing parenting and recording all in one world okay talk to y'all later and take care hey i know many of you are aware of this but for those of you that aren't aware Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called 
audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 